Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and we've brought on a fabulous returning guest, Kevin Stoffman, back onto the show. Welcome, Kevin. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me on. Based in Dallas, it's abnormally cold. We don't know how to handle cold weather. <laughs> I think we've got to beat here in California on how we can handle cold or not, too. <laughs> Uh, At least maybe me, maybe just me, maybe just me personally. (laughs) I see jackets go on when I visit California when it drops below 60. So it's a, yeah, it's different. Well, welcome back to the show, Kevin. How are you doing? Yeah, life is great. It's obviously been a while since I've been back. A lot of changes in the market, a lot of changes in the generalized economy. I think plenty to talk about. So give us a little bit of an update of what you're doing now. Let's start with what is your current focus now? Sure. So I joined Cherry about two months ago. I'm their global head of innovation. So my job is to understand what interesting new data sets we need to be ingesting into the platform, who we need to be partnering with, what geographic markets we need to either increase our focus on or begin a renewed focus on, and look at the competitive landscape and see who we might want to partner or acquire. It's a much larger scope. And I think the timing is pretty fantastic. Because I think as we'll talk about, there's a a lot more uncertainty in the real estate market than there was two years ago. What has been the biggest change that you've seen so far from two years ago to where we are now? I think sectors that were declared dead are very much not. And sectors that were white hot are now cooling. So everybody wanted to be in industrial and logistics. And I think it still remains that way to a degree. But the interest rate costs and cap rate spreads got to the point where it would be very hard without a lot of experience and the right type of deal to be putting new money into industrial space, especially speculative space. On the flip side, people thought that retail was dead. I mean, we were in the middle of COVID. No one was going and visiting retail shops. And now fast forward to today, retail is a fantastically performing asset class. Multifamily was and continues to be strong, although the what makes a deal pencil is probably a little uh, thinner today than it was a couple of years ago. And the biggest question mark definitely is office. I don't know how many of your investors or listeners are investors in the office asset class. It's the one I'm most afraid of. But oh, I was talking to my CEO the other day. In normal times, real estate, actually kind of a boring investment, right? It's a great investment because it's tax advantaged and you can play really, really long-term market trends. But in normal times, you just build your financial model. And as long as you don't really, really mess up on property management, you'll make about what you expected to make. In these times of uncertainty, yes, the risk is higher, but the return potential is much higher. If you really love real estate, you should be extremely excited to be an investor today. Let's kind of talk a little bit about like the retail space that you had mentioned a little bit earlier. What changed where people had assumed that getting into that space, it was going to be really challenging years ago, but why is it revitalized now? Like what makes it so great or successful in the current environment that we're in right now? Yeah, I think when the pandemic hit and everyone was home and 
items were being purchased and delivered, I think people thought that would extrapolate to every type of retail purchase. It started with durable goods, consumer packaged goods, things we are ordering off of Amazon or something else, right? Every single day. And people thought that would happen with vehicles, right? You saw Carvana launch and other platforms. People thought the housing market would become accelerated digitally and you wouldn't deal with people anymore. I just don't think that's actually played out. People want experiences more than they want things, but for certain items that they buy, they want to touch it, feel it, interact with it. And so retail owners have definitely rethought the design layout of a particular store, right? They want it to be a little more experiential. They want a reason for you to show up in a space, something like a Tesla store, right? You don't actually buy anything there. You just go and you talk to an expert and you spec out what you'd want your car to look like. And it's a really neat and inviting place. You even see that with the larger big box retailers, right? Like a Best Buy, you're going there to discover, not just to purchase what you might have come to to buy for the day. And that will continue. I think brands that have a lot of loyalty will continue to succeed, where the general stores that kind of have everything uh, will continue to struggle a little bit. I think department stores are a real risk. But power centers are definitely outperforming what people thought they would uh, just a year ago. And then also for office spaces, there was a lot of speculation that like people were not going to go back to the office. That space was going to go away. Where is it now? Do you see that trend continuing to happen or is it starting to pick back up as people are going back to the office? Yeah, I talked to Chris Rising about this a couple months ago on his podcast. It falls into kind of a two by two matrix, like where do you live and what type of personality are you? If you are an extrovert and you live in a big city where a lot of your coworkers are also residing, it's very, very likely you're going to spend a large amount of time in the office because it's personally valuable, it's professionally valuable, and it aligns to your work style and personality type. On the opposite end of that, you've got introverts who have chosen a remote job for that reason, because they don't want that constant interaction and they feel very good as call it like single performers and they feel fine just collaborating virtually. They will also probably stay away from the office consistently. So the two question mark buckets are extroverts who want that interaction, but who don't live either in the city center or there aren't a lot of colleagues in their company in the same geographic vicinity. And then introverts who don't necessarily get excited about that type of face-to-face collaboration and experience, but who live in a market where most of their company exists. Those two buckets remain, you know, kind of question marks. And I think what will happen is most of these companies will land on a hybrid structure where Everyone's required to be in maybe two days a week. And those who want to come in more often will, and those who don't won't. And I think really with the pandemic and everything like that, you really started to 
get a better sense of where you fell in the spectrum of being an extrovert or an introvert. And maybe in the past, you thought you were an extrovert, but being at home pulled the introvert out of you. And then vice versa, you might have thought that you were an introvert, but then you started craving like socializing, going out and talking to people. So it's interesting to see how not just the environment has changed, but personalities and preferences and what you thought you knew about yourself changes as well. We were talking about how to do culture building at Cherry because now we've gotten to the point where, you know, at 125 employees, you don't actually know everyone's name and a bit about them if you're not working with them directly in, in their particular department every day. And what we settled on was there's obviously two types of events, events that are very specifically and purposefully face to face so that people who aren't around each other all the time, but want to build relationships, have the opportunity to do so. And most of those happen in New York City, where we're headquartered. But for the other group that does not really thrive on that type of interaction, we're setting more virtual get-togethers, right? Morning virtual coffees, uh, lunch and learns, or even an offsite to some sort of event space or resort that they've all voted on. It's almost like crowdsourced culture building. We don't think of Cherry as a family. We think of it as a community. And the value of community, right, is that you choose to be there. You're not, you know, forced into a, a situation like you would be in family. And community often thrives when everyone feels invested in. So for real estate investors in today's environment, what has changed in terms of their focus and where they're really spending the majority of their times building up their businesses and looking at different aspects of the market? Yeah, I mean, I think a little over a year ago when we chatted, single family residential was just a massively growing and almost blowing up space. Money was super cheap. There was a pretty decent amount of supply and that quickly changed. Now interest rates are higher. All of the iBuyers have retrenched, not all of them, but many of them have retrenched. And so it used to be a darling. Now people are, instead of focusing on net new purchases with dry powder they're saying well of the homes i've now purchased and i'm not wanting to flip because i don't know where i'd put that money next i'm taking some of my capital and focusing on improving the properties that i do own right rethinking the bedroom mix the finish out of the space any amenities that you might put into a home maybe you add an accessory dwelling unit in the backyard i know those are very popular in California where you are, or enhancing a space that might have been a bedroom that is rethought for something else, a playroom, an office. There's a big focus there. And then for those where zoning laws have changed, where you might have purchased a single family residence and you're rethinking its use, turning it into a duplex or a quadplex, or purchasing three lots next to each other and getting approved to do some sort of multifamily style complex. That's pretty common. On the larger scale, that same thing is happening with older aged office buildings, right? Anything that's pretty big where the ceilings are high, can't just adaptive reuse that thing into multifamily. Does It's not that easy. It doesn't work that way. You have to change elevator banks and ceiling heights and landscaping. What's actually more common is you find some sort of class C old office building that has really low vacancy, that's close to retail, that's actually close to residential neighborhoods. 
the economics there pencil a lot more because the overall cost to turn it into multifamily is less and the demand is likely increased. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. With the single family space and a lot of the institutions and people are pulling out of investing in heavily in the single family market now, do you see a trend of a potential decreasing in home values across the markets? Or do you see a potential stabilization um, and maybe just a slighter decrease than what people are anticipating? I think we always end up reverting to the mean over the long term. Real estate typically tends to grow at a fairly decent pace adjusted for inflation because of its tax advantage status, especially for people who are using it as as their primary residence, there will be kind of a a floor to what prices can be. There will always be increased demand because there's a shortage of of housing, right? Multifamily or single family otherwise. Where I think you may see the most pricing pressure is in markets that ballooned a little too quickly. Some of the Sunbelt states that were the talk of the town and maybe went a little bit too high you may see a slight adjustment there. You'll continue to see pricing pressure, not necessarily for single family housing, but maybe for like apartments or condos in cities that were always viewed as too expensive and people are leaving them, right? San Francisco, Seattle. And that doesn't have as much to do with just the supply demand curve as it does the political environment. It's very hard to get new housing stock approved. That will continue to affect those markets, at least in the medium term. One one bright spot of hope is California has this law called the builder's remedy and municipalities have to vote to, I don't remember if it's like San Ramon or San Bernardino, one of the sands uh, (laughs) uh, just approved builder's remedy to be open for bids. And it was something like before they did that, there were applications for 400 housing units. And within 48 hours of that being approved, it ballooned to 4,500 housing units. So if you change the bureaucracy in a particular municipality and you make it a little bit easier and a little more cost-effective for people to introduce more housing stock, that will happen. Like the appetite is there. And so for your listeners who are investors, If you see that happen, if you're tracking certain regulatory data, which Cherry tracks a ton of regulatory change data, we always encourage investors to be putting money into those markets. Because even if you're not of institutional size and you're not going to build a five-story garden variety, 250-unit complex, and you're doing something on a smaller scale, the influx of those units will also lead to 
the types of investments that I think your listeners really, really capitalize and thrive on, those single family homes, condos, duplexes, quadplexes, where I actually think there's a lot of money to be made still. And based off of the data that you analyze and that you're gathering at Cherry, are there certain emerging markets that people had previously didn't expect to perform as well as they expected or they were didn't pay as much attention to it and now it's actually a potentially good market to get into? Not like any massive surprises where we thought it was going to be a bad market and it's amazing market, but there are many markets where we we either overestimated the demise or we underestimated the growth. In the latter group, Texas, just by and large, is extremely successful. The Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, the greater Houston area, Austin and San Antonio have all grown quite a bit more than I think any of us had expected. And it hasn't slowed down. There were some people that assumed that because Texas, for the most part, has extremely hot summers, that people would come here during the pandemic all excited and then experience 100 degree plus heat for a couple months and say, oh, this isn't for me. But that really hasn't happened at all. The net migration trends continue to be a lot, lot more positive. Also, I think people decided that New York was going to hell. People were going to leave and not come back. And that just hasn't been true. People have been coming back into the city to a large degree. Yes, there was some migration to New Jersey in Westchester and the suburbs of Manhattan, but people have returned. What they haven't done as much is gotten back onto public transportation. They all purchased vehicles, appreciated the freedom of having the vehicle. So now traffic is the new problem. I was just going to say, I was like, the traffic was already terrible in New York. And so if people are now investing in their own individual cars, I can't even imagine how it's increased twofold now, at least. Let me be definitely not the first to say that it has gotten worse. (laughs) Uh, And I actually appreciate on public transportation. And that might just be because Dallas doesn't really have a lot of public transportation. So, What about like the capital raising environment, debt management and everything like that? How has that changed today? Yeah. So it's interesting. If we think about prop tech companies, right? Those who are trying to get venture capital money, a lot of them are are struggling, right? At least having to come to a moment where the valuations have to correct, just like owners of office buildings are having to realize that the dynamics are going to be different. Their buildings are going to be worth less than they thought. And the reasons for those are actually kind of the same. When you value a company or a building, you're really basing it on a series of what you think will be the future cash flows of the entity. And for companies, they're having to come to more to profitability because they think that revenue growth will be a little bit slower. So you have to be more cost conscious. For building owners, most of the money they get comes from rent. And the longer and more stable the lease length and term and rate, that is how banks and financial institutions have typically underwritten the value of those buildings. So because lease lengths are getting shorter, people want more flexibility, companies want more flexibility. That increases in the minds of financial institutions the amount of risk that they're willing to accept. And therefore, that's lowering, either lowering the value of the building or it's changing the debt terms that they're willing to offer. 
And when you do a large scale development, typically you're going to secure construction financing and then some sort of permanent financing. And there's a big set of risk points when you're completing construction on, okay, what's the lease up rate? Are you getting the rent you expected to get? Are you getting the term you expected to get? And when those things don't happen, it becomes harder to get permanent financing. And then that opens the opportunity for people with deep pockets to come in and you know buy those buildings at a discount. You might see that to a little bit of a degree in the single family market. So the larger master plan community developers in Dallas that looks like Hillwood, Crow Holdings, Hunt, Lincoln property, they're all extremely well capitalized. So they're not really struggling. But the smaller players, if you decided to you were going to go build six homes on spec and the market's changed and all of a sudden now you can only really afford to end up building four of those homes, what do you do? with the other two land plots. You go find people that will help you spread the risk. For a smaller investor, that's where the opportunity is. I would encourage your listeners to be looking in markets that they know really, really well, either locally or just because they have a lot of knowledge in a particular market, keeping track of housing starts, zoning request changes at the city council. You'll see that if somebody has taken on a lot of financial risk, that may be an opportunity down the road. So is it still a good time to get into real estate? It is always a good time <laughs> for real estate. And the reason I say that is because real estate is such a vast market. It's never always good for every property type and always bad for every property type. Real estate is always not very correlated to the way growing or stock market. So I always recommend people putting money into real estate. As you think about where in real estate to target those investments, look, I just... I think that we have such a shortage of housing um, in this country, whether multifamily or single family, that will always be a good investment if you're not trying to just buy and flip. If you have some patience, those two types of investments can be what I call get rich slow. Always be a good place to put your money. I would be wary of office developments. I would be wary of speculative builds like warehouses that don't have a spoken for tenant uh, just because of the typical dynamics cap rates interest rates you'll end up with some negative leverage there i'm also maybe the one where i'm really contrarian compared to most other people i'm very bullish on student housing i know that a lot of those developments took some risk they were really fancy builds and then people weren't going back to campus and those things didn't do well but i'm just a believer that if you're near a tier one university. It's amazing, amazing development projects to put in. Look, it's market rate. People are churning every year. So you're always getting rent increases. The rental payments are often backed by the students' parents who are typically financially well off. It's just the dynamics support outperformance. And so I would always be looking at student housing. And do you see cap rates compressing at all? It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for cap rates to compress more in pretty much any, maybe retail. If trends continue, they might compress a little. Medical office life science has been pretty popular. So you've seen demand go up there. So cap rates could continue to compress there. But I'd find it really hard in today's interest rate environment for industrial multifamily to be compressing. I think they're likely going to go up a little bit. 
And Kevin, thank you so much for coming back on and sharing all of this valuable information. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Always love being on. Kevin, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, so company website is www.cherre.com. And of course, anyone can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I engage a lot on social media. All I ask is uh, you give me some context when you reach out on where you heard me because I get a lot of requests and sometimes they don't have any context and I can't really engage at that point. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for coming back on. I really appreciate it. Of course. Take care. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.